Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Karen Washington, who is a farmer and activist. She is co-owner farmer at Rise and Root Farm in Chester, New York, an activist, food advocate, and 2010 co-founded Black Urban Growers, Bugs, an organization supporting growers in both urban and rural settings. In 2012, Ebony Magazine voted her one of the most 100 most influential African Americans in the country, and in 2014 was a recipient of the James Beard Leadership Award. Karen serves on the boards of the New York Botanical Gardens, Mary Mitchell Center, Soul Fire Farm, and Black Farmer Fund. Welcome. Thanks for having me. That was a long introduction. <laughs> You've done a lot. I mean, like, I, the list of awards is, whew. There's a lot going on there. You've been yeah, busy. Very, very busy. So glad to be here. So talk to me, how did you get into agriculture? Yeah, that is a story I've been telling for years because my family was not into agriculture. My grandparents, uh, immediate parents were not involved in agriculture. I just happened to in 2000, um, sorry, in 1985, happened to buy a house, had a backyard, and I decided to grow mm-hmm. some food. And it was the tomato that changed my world because my relationship to food was always that it was from a grocery store. My mom was a good cook Yeah. Um, until I discovered that, wow, the taste was incredible. A, a, a tomato was actually red and not pink. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tasted incredible and it grew on a vine. Mm-hmm. And that sort of gave me the desire to want to grow everything and coinciding with that three years later turning an empty lot into a community garden really sort of really expanded my passion and thirst Mm -hmm. for growing food so then you kind of developed doing more community gardens and then what prompted you to start the your farm So while I was working in so I lived in a low-income neighborhood in the Bronx and so um, really got involved in advocacy and activism because by just being in that plot of land and growing food just wasn't enough because it really impacted so many social issues that was happening within my community, social issues around housing, no heat and hot water, social issues yeah. around environment, uh, things with um, um, a- asthma and of course, diet-related diseases. And so just working in that, in that, in that garden, in that small space, I always thought of one day, you know, expanding. And so I had a chance meeting friends in New York City that were still working on social issues and social uh-huh. justice issues as I was. And we made a pact that one day, if we had the opportunity, we would farm together. And so that opportunity came in 2014 uh-huh. when I left my profession as a physical therapist to follow my dream 
and was able with my three friends to get some land up in Chester, New York to start the farm Rising Root Farm. Mm-hmm. And how far north of the city is that? It's from, from where I lived in the Bronx, an hour and 15 minutes. I tell people it's quicker to go from my house to the farm than it is from my house to Brooklyn. Okay. Yes. And I've experienced traffic there, so I know what that's like. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yes. So talk to me, being a physical therapist, you made that leap. Was that challenging? Did it take you a couple of years to make that decision? Not at all. I mean, I love my job as a physical therapist. Yeah. A lot of times I was able to get a lot of knowledge from mm-hmm. uh, my patients who were uh, Black and Latinx, and they grew up on farms and gardens, and now they were succumbed to a food system that was killing them, type 2 mm-hmm. diabetes, hypertension. And so um, I love my job, but it just came a point in time in my life where I wanted to follow my dreams, and I had the capability of, of putting in years and saving that it was time for me at 2014 at the age of 60 to say, you know, I've done my best, you know, uh-huh. and I want to explore, explore that, that, that desire to grow food on a farm. And so it was easy for me that to make that decision. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the Bronx and the neighborhood and just kind of what food insecurity there looks like. Yes, so um, the Bronx is one of 62 counties in New York State. Mm -hmm. And out of 62 counties in New York State, the Bronx ranks the most unhealthiest. Wow. High incidence of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, um, infant mortality, especially amongst um, communities of color, Mm. saturated, saturated with a full system of a subsidized um, food system um, that relies on a lot of food pantries and, and soup kitchens. The food is predominantly made up of fast food, junk food, and processed food. Uh-huh. Um, and so, yeah, that's the food system that's out there. And it's, 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 it's really what you see in most low-income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color throughout this country that mm-hmm. relies on this sort of subsidized um, charity-based food system that's out there. And it's that is unhealthy. Yeah. And, and why is that? Well, I say that it's this, you know, people used to ask me, you know, is the food system broken and does it need to be fixed? And at one time I used to believe that I was drinking that Kool-Aid. Yeah. Believing that, but then I started to look close at the food system and it's doing, it's doing exactly what it is. It's a caste system. It's based on the color of one's skin, mm. how much money you have and where you live. Mm-hmm. And so, um, for me, the food system is the d- design. It's designed to keep people, especially people in color, you know, succumb to this, this food system that's, that's not healthy. And I yeah. say that because being in um, the health profession, you could see how a lot of the illnesses and diet-related diseases was, you know, was dealt with medication and so and hospitalization. Yeah. And so you look at the system and how it's built, it's built whereby the, the hospital system yep. and the pharmaceutical system is built on bodies on a number of people. And so if you have people who are sick, you're making money off of them. You know, you're making money off. Can you imagine if people were well, you, you, the pharmaceutical systems would go out, yeah. out of business, the hospital institution would go out of business. So for me, it was always 
I always felt it was a money, a money-making business and that we, we were used as pawns to fuel that system. Yeah, I, I can agree with you 100% on that. And I think with you look at some of the um, poorer neighborhoods, they're working so hard just to make do, they don't have the time to maybe go look at some of those books or go to find, you know, fresher food where someone who's got a much more, don't have to work that 60 hours a week or two or three jobs. They've just got more space in their life to start researching this stuff. Not only that, you know, sometimes there's this misinformation that, you know, poor people don't want healthy food. Whereas, you know, if you put poor people together in terms of the amount of money they bring into the system, they will buy, if they have the option to yeah. buy fresh produce as, at, at a reasonable price, they would buy it. They yeah. would buy it. So, but yet if that's not available in their neighborhoods and if the price is out of reach, then that's a problem because at the end of the day, we are in the United States, one of the wealthiest countries yes. in the world where we waste yeah. enough and we grow enough food. So the question I always ask in the 21st century is why is there, why is there still hunger, poverty, yeah. and homelessness? Yeah. And, and you're right. We live in the richest country one of the richest, because I think there's some little tiny Baltic countries or something, which I think technically make more money. But I mean, like America has always been known as the land of opportunity, or you'd be able to do what you want, but we still have this happening. Yes. And I think that continues to fuel me to, to, to challenge the food system, because again, why are we still having the same problem in the 21st century? Why is it? And again, like I said, there is money and politics behind this food system that continues to fuel and continues to put food in a subsidized charity-based food system that number one makes people feel good because you know you're handing people food, but then at the same time, you're not you're not tackling the problem with solutions. You just yeah. amplify and put a band-aid on the problem of poverty and hunger. And so for me. It's to challenge the food system to look at ways that we can can um, end hunger and, and poverty. And for me, a lot of it is based on economic development, social capital, communal wealth, getting people jobs, training people in terms of be entrepreneurs. You know, we're talking about not only food justice, but food sovereignty to be able mm -hmm. to control communities and food systems in such a way that benefits your community. And at the end, you are the one that dictating what types of food that you want to see, um, the types of growers that you want to, to see, and also the types of people that you, growers that you, that you want to be. Um, yeah. Owning land is very, very critical when we, when we talk about what wealth looks like. So talk to me a little bit about that land piece, because Bronx is very highly populated. What opportunities are there, or, just, or is it very, very, very uh, slim because of just so many houses? Well, the thing about it is that, you know, land in any municipality has political consequences. And I yeah. say that because you have to right now in cities, you have to weigh green space with development. And so yeah. when I get a chance to speak to these new um, developers, these new um, planners, you know, I say, you know, when you're thinking about planning and developing housing, you need to also add green space to your infrastructure so that you can do a housing unit, but then you, you can also within that housing unit, put on a rooftop garden, put in vertical, vertical garden, put in a greenhouse, put in open space 
so that you're tackling both issues. You're tackling the demand for development, but also the demand for green space, which is really, really critical in urban areas, which are highly populated and yeah. whereby land is very limited. Yeah. Is New York City sustainable? In terms of what? If you turn, if, if when people say sustainable, they're looking at the fact that, well, will growing food in urban spaces feed the masses? And I say, no, it, it, it's not intended to, to do that. Yeah. You know, I, I, why? You know, no, it's not intended to feed the masses, yeah. especially if we're looking at the projection that by 2050, there'll be an additional 2 billion people on this planet. And most of those people will end up in, 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 uh, in urban areas. That's not practical. Yeah. So I think it's, it's not about techniques of growing food. It's how do we grow food more efficiently? we're always going to need the rural component of growing food. But yeah. I think what, in terms of urban agriculture, it gives people a chance to have that connection to land, have that control of the food that they want to see, that cultural experience that they might not be able to find in a, in a grocery store, but that educational component that you never got. You know, For me growing up, I never got my relationship to food and land from my ancestors. What was taught for me, is to get away from the land, the slavery mentality that was always put into and drilled into my to my mind until I realized how false that was in the fact that my ancestors were brought here because of their knowledge of agriculture mm. and not because of of their strength or because that they um, were 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 ignorant. Yeah. So talk to, break that down a little bit, because I think that's something I've read a couple of books that talks about that where, and correct me if I'm wrong, that sometimes Afro-Americans have that, it's tough for them to get involved with agriculture because of that history there where they were forced to do it. Yes. Yeah, so, well, the thing about it, if, you, if you're taught that history over and over again, of course you don't want yeah. to, to do that type of work. But if you take away that false narrative and you say, wait a second, you come from kings and queens. Yeah. You, come, you have an, angar, an agrarian DNA within your, your body and that you were brought here because of your knowledge of agriculture. The seeds you brought in this in your head that you put down was the foundation for the food that the colonists were able to eat. The, the, the methods of, of irrigation and crop rotation, we brought the tools, agricultural tools we brought here. And uh -huh. so when you break it down and you start re-educating people about their place in American agricultural history, it's totally different. Uh -huh. Also, to get people to understand the power of land and how land at one time was in the hands of enslaved people as well as indigenous people and how mm -hmm. that land was taken away and land at that time was very powerful land was built on wealth yeah. and so when you have the ability to give people access to land at a point in time in history and that land is taken away from them but yet certain people namely whites were able to build wealth on land uh -huh. then you see the disparity that we often see when it comes to wealth inequality in this country yeah. And I think obviously you look at some of the additional factors of lack of uh, access to capital over the years in the South to Afro-Americans historically. That obviously was massively a problematic. And then you look today of who owns the land and who doesn't. Correct. And that's a conversation that a lot of people don't want to have. You know, you, all yeah. of a sudden you have 
this these 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 things coming up, you know, about uh, race and culture and 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 not teaching critical race theory and not teaching, you know, having books in library that we have to ban and keep from our children and not having hard conversations when it comes to race. And, and, and economics is absolutely crazy, but you know what? You just can't continue to silence the masses of people wanting yeah. to know the truth. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it's, it's that history that we have to recognize so we don't repeat it. And, and maybe it's not that same, it's gonna be repeat with the same peoples, but I think it, 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 it works in cycles. And so different minorities maybe are being repeated with. Um, Yes, and which I'm, you know, as I look with my 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 vision of, of uh -huh. what this country will look like 10 to 20 years from now, this country will definitely be different in terms of the colorization of this country. Uh -huh. And so uh, when it happens, you never want to be able to when people of color or when the co country is colorized to replicate a system of oppression. Uh -huh. you never want to replicate the oppressor. So what do you learn from people who have the, the ability to put other humans in bondage or, or to take people away from their land and take uh -huh. away people's language and stuff like that? You never want to, once you gain power and you learn from being oppressed, to bring those same qualities when you're trying to manufacture a new way of living. And so hopefully, as like you said, history has a tendency to repeat itself, yeah. but you don't want to take those bad things of oppression and making sure that you tend to, at the end, replicate those bad yeah. things. Talk to me a little bit about some of the crops that were brought over from Africa, because I know that's a lot of things. Some people don't realize all the, the history there. Yeah, so... Certain like like the seed like watermelon, you know, people yep. think watermelon. How about rice? I grew up thinking that wait a second, rice was from Asia. African rice, we were brought rice was brought here. A lot of sorghum, a lot mm -hmm. of um cereals were were, were, were brought here. Um, so there's a lot, there's a wealth of, of information. And and they used to say when you look at the seed catalog, they will say like guinea peas or, or guinea bees because they use the word guinea okay. as, 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 as saying that was, it was from Africa. Even the cocoa nut was brought from Africa. Cocoa nut, where you get huh. Coca-Cola from? Hello. And so, Interesting. Yeah. so there's a lot of, a, a lot of, of seeds. And, 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 and not only medicinal seeds, but culinary seeds that were brought here from us that shaped this nation. And even the way we cook the mm -hmm. cuisines, the dishes that we make, um, you know, when I watch these programs, I watch these barbecue programs and I, I watch these culinary programs, you know, and I don't see our faces. It just behooves me because I'm saying like, who was in the kitchen back in the day? Yeah. Who making these dishes? You know what I'm saying? And so... There's always this nuance about different dishes, but again, where is our place, not only in terms of food, growing food, but also in terms of culinary dishes as well. Mm -hmm. Now, like okra, that's from Africa too, right? Okra, yes. Okra, um, uh, like I said, okra, sorghum, um, different types of, of grains, of, of collards. Beans. 
I don't know if college, but I I don't know if college were was you know from Africa. You know, I think it might have made its way from more of the Caribbean okay. di- yeah. diaspora, along with like Kalalu and stuff like that, but definitely, yeah. but definitely okra. Um, yeah. Definitely, and rice. We grow a, a, a collard called, I think it's Southern yellow, yellow cabbage collard. I don't know if you've ever seen that variety, but it's the leaves are actually more of a yellowish and it's so tender because I've had the regular collards and stuff, but they just seem so thick, but these cabbage ones the leaves are so thin and so tender and it, we grow it in the winter typically here in Ohio. Um, yeah. So it's, I, I love that variety. Uh, but okra, I just, seeds. I will. Yes. I will send you some seeds. Yes. Let me put that down. Um, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about, you've been involved in a, a, a lot of advocacy and a couple different uh, programs that you've worked. Talk to me about the urban black grower, the black urban growers. Yes. So I went to a program back in 2008 called the Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food System. Uh-huh. It's called CASFIS for short. Yeah. It was a six month program in Santa Cruz, California, learning how to grow organically. Um, and one of the um, trips was, you know, traveling various farms in Santa Cruz. And the question I would ask is like, where are the farmers that look like me? And so I did a project while I was there because each of us had had to do a project. Yeah. <clears throat> and my project was the plight of the black farmer. And during the research, what I found out back then, this was 2010, I asked to look at the census and what I found back then mm. that in 2000, um, 2010, there were 56,000, 56,000 farmers. And out of those 60, 56,000, only 113 were black. So mm. when I got back to New York, you know, I, I reached out to my friends and I said, you know, we have to start, let's do a, a conference uh-huh. That is black center because for years you go to conferences, farming conferences and workshops, and you sit there in a sea of whiteness. You sit there and there may be hundreds to thousands of people that attend, but you sit there and you count on your hand how many people look like you. You look around because as soon as you walk in a room as a black person, you're looking to see how many people look like you. Uh-huh. And so for years you sit at these conferences and these workshops which are white-centered, the, the um, speakers are white, the workshops are white, and you say to yourself, how do you fit in? What is your, what is your relationship? How do you fit in into the whole world of agriculture? And so we decided, you know what? We need to have our own conference, that our own conference that speaks about our history, uh, speaks about uh, our relationship to food, to to um, bring to the forefront black scientists, uh, black farmers, black people, anthropologists, people that are working within the system of food, and for young people to see them, to uh-huh. see people talk about what it was and how it is to grow food here, the challenges, but most of all the success, and how to get people interested in agriculture. And at that time, we had over 500 people, Wow. 500 people showing up, 
for the first time listening to people talk about their own history and their own way of, 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 of growing food and mentioning so many people who have been at the forefront. Even today, when we talk about, you know, um, regeneration, you know, and all these, these sort of uh, nuances, no one ever mentions George Washington Carver. Uh-huh. He never mentioned. Yes. Yeah. And he was never one of my. mentioned. And when all. I was. When I was growing up, he was one of my idols because, you know, we read the books about all the things he created and how he would go back and, you know, all the the, the peanuts and the sweet potatoes. Um, yeah, I remember reading those books when I was six, seven, eight, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So so and subsequently we had it for the last um, consecutive consecutively until 2019 when COVID hit. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have it. So hopefully this year we're back on track. Uh-huh. to have it in a, in a place where we will continue to have these conversations uh, that we need to have here in, in America. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so that then the, the Black Urban Growers, that's a conference. And then you guys do support work throughout the year. Yes, definitely. So uh, what we try to do is really to do networking, uh-huh. to really get people who, you know, come to us and ask for, especially around, um, areas where they can find land or where they want to uh, to grow? Um, what are some organizations that are out there that are doing the work for them to do either Skillshare work, um, to find, especially to find land or to work on holding on to land? There's a big thing when it comes to heirs property mm-hmm. of where so many um, Black families who don't have wills um have been losing their land uh because of the fact that again it's the 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 legal system yeah of ways that black people never had the opportunity to write wills and so as a result you know a lot of the land that's out there has been stolen Uh taken away or just um lost because people have not been able to yeah. To pay taxes or there's no connection because there's no will and who really owns it. Well, and if there's no will, then it's much more expensive, much harder to actually make sure it stays in the family. Right. Cause you have to get a, yeah. a lawyer, you have to go to probate and that's a cost that a lot of people um, are not able to do. However, again, this is a conversation that we need to have when it comes to the farm bill changes uh-huh. that need to be made so that people who have documents or who are on the land can show um, without a will that they, that that family is owning that land and then having that land taken away and finding yeah. steps that make it feasible for them to take to continue to keep that land. So you mentioned the farm bill too, cause that's coming up here shortly, a rewrite of that, correct? Yeah. So there's two things, you know, we're still trying to work on debt relief. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's been out there and again, the challenges and I just don't understand, you know, again, the challenges when it comes to helping black farmers is always race bait. And so now you have a group of farmers is trying to say, you know, this is reversal or racial discrimination. And how can that be when white farmers own 90, 98% of land? Yeah. And you have 1% of people that are trying to hold on to that land and trying to get out of debt. And you're saying is reverse discrimination. So I don't know how that holds up. And then the Black Farmer Act that we're trying to, again, push 
to provide resources so that there's a way for young people uh, to, to learn how to farm. There's provisions so people have access to land. Um, and so these are things that you know, you know, you want to see in a farm bill. You want to see ways that can really encourage the next generation of, of farmers to be more diverse. But that mm-hmm. takes training, that takes capital, you know, that takes ways to doing that. And then also when it comes to USD, USDA grants, they have to make it easy. You know, you have to go, you have to have some sort of degree. Yeah. You know, to, to sit down and go through a 20 page application yeah. that doesn't make sense to the people that are trying to do the work. Yeah, trust me, it's it's tough. I mean, we had we got a one of the, the smaller, I forget the beginning farmer program. And, and it was like 12 or 14 different documents. And he was like, well, yeah, it's been a lot easier. And I'm like, well, it's still very hard. And right. This is, I've been in agriculture 17 years, so I should be able to figure this out a lot quicker. And it, it still, for me, was very challenging. So mm-hmm. for someone who's only a couple of years in, I can't imagine the challenges it is to, to put that all together. So now, from what I understand, there was some debt relief in the last one, or is that, am I thinking about something different? Well, we, if, you, if, you, if you're talking about the Pickford suit, are you talking about Pickford? Because there's Pickford one and Pickford two. So Pickford one and Pickford two, is when they found that the, the USDA was making was had had discriminatory practices yes. that um, prevented yeah. farmers um, with debt relief because of the fact that many of them were trying to get loans and could not get loans. They were turned and down. So there was a provision um, that you know that made for uh, farmers uh, to get some sort of compensation. So that yeah. was pick one. And then they did pick with two because again, it didn't reach out to many of the farmers that had passed on or many of the farmers that didn't have a, a, a opportunity to fill yeah. that out. But again, um, it's, it's taken a lot of time and energy for farmers to continue to get that money. And then what I heard is that once you get that money, you got to pay taxes on that money. Come on, for really? You give them debt relief, and then you turn around and say, "Well, that's money given to you, and you got to pay taxes on it." Just, oh, that's ridiculous. Yes, well, that's but that's the but. But you know what? That's what the system is, and that's mm-hmm. why change changes have to be made. Changes have yeah. to be made. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, talk to us a little bit about your farm, Rise and Root Farm. You guys uh, have a couple different like areas that you focus on. Uh, talk to us about the the plants that you raise. Yes, so we all come from community gardens in New York City. And so Mm -hmm. we have had the opportunity, this is our third year to really um, do the plant the starts Mm -hmm. for many of the community gardens in New York City. So a lot of stuff that people, we know we grow um, in cities that's viable is, you know, we grow the greens, we grow the collards, we grow the kale, um, we grow t- tomatoes is a big thing that we grow. Tomatoes, so many different types of herbs. So Rise and Root Farm, we pride ourselves, first of all, in terms of food and social justice. Uh-huh. Um, we are a for-profit farm. We're not a non-profit farm. We're a for-profit farm. Two of us are people of color. Three of us are LGBTQ women. Um, and so we bring that sort of those those values to the work that we do we consider ourselves 
not sort of owners in the sense of owning things, but we figured we we pride ourselves in being stewards of the land. Mm-hmm. We know we're on the land of the Napi people. We make sure that we get people that that come to our our farm because we are in Orange County. We're on the black dirt region. So what does yes. that mean? That means that there's 40% organic matter in our soil. Our soil is crazy. We grow the best vegetables. We also yeah. grow the best weeds. Yes. But yet we have to be mindful of that, the blessing that we have when, when it comes to that soil, that we don't, because agriculture can be very extractive and we have to make sure that whatever we take out of that soil that we put back into that soil. Yeah. And so so things that grow really well, first of all, the, it was a climate um, in terms of soil fertility to grow onions. And so, yes, yep. but we don't grow a lot of onions. We do a lot of, we do a lot of growing now in high tunnels. Okay. And I say that because um, there's, a, there's a short window in, in upstate New York in terms of growing year round. And so by growing um, vegetables in high tunnels, so we grow different types of tomatoes and we grow basil and we grow greens all year round. And so um, we really had to find what is our niche as a, as a three acre farm that does a lot of hands-on. We just have a walk behind tractor. So a lot of our work is, is manual labor. Uh-huh. What is it that we can um, grow that can develop into an, an income? And so, uh, like I said, we grow a lot of heirloom tomatoes, a lot of uh, culinary and medicinal herbs, um, what we grow for the city, like I said, we grow greens, we grow um, herbs, we grow peppers, we grow squash, uh, we grow beets, uh, carrots, you name it, stuff that, that's hearty and nutritious that we grow for, for the people um, in New York City. But then also, um, we have community days where we have people come up and, and take a look at the practices that we do when it mm-hmm. comes to the hands-on practices that we do when it comes to um, putting seeds in the ground and weeding and and taking care of the plants in a way that's very, very holistic and very intentional. Um, again, being stewards of the land, making sure that, you know, our hands are in the soil, our feet are in the soil, you know, it's just, it's just a way of, of, of giving back and, and really paying attention to um, the amount of water that we use, Uh the type of plants that we grow. And then, you know, at the end of the day, just sitting back and just giving the universe and the environment, you know, the thanks, you know, Uh to be able to do the work that we do. You know, I think uh, a lot of it is, for me, is very spiritual uh, to be on that land and to do, and to be having the the gift to be able to do that I, I find that very special for me yeah now you do some value adding on the farm too from what i from your instagram yes um yes we've we've, we've done that in the past um we're about to, we used to do a lot of of a work around kraut okay um, doing a lot of kraut um and so we've curtailed that somewhat because of the fact that now we're we've gone from growing on two acres of land now to, to three acres of land. Uh-huh. But we want to start um, doing the value added stuff again, whereby we've done uh, a lot of the different types of sauerkraut, 
different types of peppers, different types of, um, of medicinal and culinary herbs that we will continue to, to do. Um, because now we're thinking about, and we have in the past of now, and you know, adding more people to our farm. Whereas before yeah. we first started, we were paying ourselves a dollar an hour. Yeah. Then it went up to $3 an hour. Then it went up to $8 an hour. Now we're paying ourselves $12 an hour. Yeah. So, um, yes. Okay. Cause I'm looking at that one. He did some of the flower pops, which we've done in the past. And they've never yes, looked at. Yes. That's our new thing. Yes. That's our new thing. <laughs> Yeah, we tried those that this summer. We could never make it quite work. It's oh. it's really tricky getting that temperature right before you don't. It's too hot. It makes the flowers. Anyway, mm -hmm. do you have any tricks? <laughs> but, uh, you know what? You have to speak to Michaela because Michaela is the culinary yeah. wizard. Let me tell you something. So um, we said let's sort of test the the the, the flower lollipops. Yeah. It was such a great hit. It was such, as a matter of fact, I brought some here. Um, they sent me some for Christmas to give out to my yep. family here. And um, she got it right. So I'm not going to give away my trade, her trade secret. Okay. All right. But, uh, yeah. The, it's the, possible. The pops and the different flavors of the pops. Okay. Yeah. Yes. The nice. orange, the lemon. Yes. So we're going to do more of those. Definitely. Nice. And I also like the loofah. That's another cool thing, which I think yes, is just loofah. Yes. So you have me like bringing me up to like, I'm thinking about, the, yes. So those things, the pops in a loofah are definitely things that we try to do for the first yeah. time, uh, 2021. Okay. And it's been a huge success. So yeah, the loofah and the pops are the two things. Again, trying to get it right, trying to, to find ways to, first of all, take off that hard outer shell of loofah. Yes. And then literally, you have to bang it, bang it, and knock it mm -hmm. to open up the, 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 the cell that's inside. And then having the temperature to try to dry it, to take out the inner seeds and to dry it. Yep. And to make sure that it's at a temperature where it doesn't become moldy, um, but then just right. So, and then we were able to really, um, to give it away as gifts and to sell it. So those are the two things that we we are doing um, now, but we also wanna think about bringing back the crowd and the peppers that we've yeah. done in the past and the medicinal culinary herbs we've done in the past, but we figured let's try these two things, the pops and the, yeah. the loofah. And so far they've been a hit. Very cool. Um, talk to us a little bit about your marketing because you sell locally and in the city. Yes. So we have three markets. So we have, and they all vary um, in price okay. and also um, clientele. So we have a high-end market, which is the Union Square market, uh -huh. which is down in lower Manhattan, down Union Square, 14th Street. We're on 16th Street, yep. which is more high-end. And then more um, middle class end is the Kingston market, which we just started a couple okay. of years ago. And so that's more middle. And then we have the Bronx market that I started back in 2004, which is more of a, a lower income bracket. Okay. But all three markets get the same produce. The price varies. 
But again, even in our low income market, we have there's a there's a cost and value of food. Yeah. And I say that because, and I'm telling this to farmers that are out there that are thinking about or have a hesitant of going into low income neighborhoods, because there's an educational component that needs to be done. And I say that because when you're surrounded by a charity-based subsidized food system, where most of people get their food free yeah. from food pantries and soup kitchens, you have to so, sort of buck that system and educate the clientele that you have that there's a price and there's a cost in the food. I'm the farmer. I'm bringing the food down. There's a cost in me buying the seeds. There's a cost in labor. There's a cost in traveling, cost in gas, and a cost that I have to take on in order to feed my family. So this is why my carrots or my beets are $2 a bunch versus what you might see in the store, 79 cent or 99 yeah. cent. This cost in value. And then having that conversation of communities that wants to support me as a farm of color, they will say, you know what? I get it. I'm going to purchase this or I get it. But at this point in time, I don't have the money, but, mm -hmm. a, but, a, but still I had that conversation within my own people because it's a conversation that farmers don't have, especially when they see farmers of color and they're interested in what we grow, making that commit, that connection and that commitment yes. that I'm here because you need me to be here. And I need you to support me by paying if it's you know through cash if it's through um coupons whatever but to make that to make that sort of 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 shout out to education which is the key to tell people that there's a cost and a value of what i'm bringing down and you have to pay for it yeah and i think that's a huge thing to and I'm glad you just brought that up because you're right. These lower income neighborhoods have so much subsidized that farmers, when they go in, they, they I think a lot of it's a disconnect. Like, well, I don't even think I'm going to sell anything because they get it for free. But as you said earlier, they are do looking for that fresh product because they can't get it with a lot of the, the free stuff. It's, oh, it's a lot harder or the quality is just not there. Right. And it's also about building relationships. Yeah. You, know, you just can't, you know, you're a farmer. In order for you to sell out with your product, in order for you to be a good farmer, it's about building relationships. People know off the bat if you're just going there just for the money. Yeah. You know, you have to go there and you have to establish a relationship to your customer so that they can keep coming back. They look forward to like, you know, if you're not there, they're wondering like, wait a second, why yeah. aren't you there? We missed you. So it's not about only growing food, but building relationships within communities so that, you know, there's this sort of uh, reciprocity mm -hmm. in that, you know, I'm growing for you. And in turn, you're helping me by yeah. buying my product. And so again, having the farm that we have, it's about not only growing food, but building relationships, which is really intentional mm -hmm. on our success. Yeah. And now you don't do any like CSA, community supported agriculture, you're just farmer's markets? Right, just farmer's markets. But then we do have a, a strong educational component mm -hmm. whereby um, we do a lot of what is called agro-tourism. Okay. Where we have visitors, we have schools, we have colleges that come. And so they pay a price. 
yeah. for that for that sort of that sort of agro-tourism component that we have, which is really, really good and really beneficial because people want to know what we're doing, want to learn from that. And yeah. again, that's a, a um another income yeah another income stream for you so with so that's interesting the education you do that way is it very specific workshops let's say you know like growing herbs or is it more of a general farm tour it's more of a general farm tour farm tour but then also they get a chance to get their hands dirty and ask questions okay and a lot of them want to learn one want to know you know like what it took for us to yeah. To be on a farm, you know, what was our experience? What were some of the pitfalls? What's some, what is the advice? And a lot of, or what is food justice and what does food sovereignty look like? What is it? What is our experience? It's because a lot of, a lot of colleges and high schools are now having curriculums around food justice yeah. and food sovereignty. And so they, and food systems, mm-hmm. sort of curriculum. And so a lot of them want to come out and meet farmers to discuss you know, ways of growing and, and, and different alternatives of growing food and seeing women farmers and then seeing women of color farmers and seeing yeah. LGBTQ farmers, you know, we run, we, we run the gamut. So you're really blowing their mind. <laughs> yes. And, and people want to find ways where they can fit in. Yes. Yes. But also because, yes, yeah, some of those other people feel marginalized to be able to connect with you and how the, and you're making it happen. Correct. Correct. Definitely. Showing yeah. up. Talk to us about the Black Farmer Fund. Yeah, the Black Farmer Fund. I'm just so proud of that. For I'm just, you know, I'm so uh-huh. proud because it happened at an incident at Stone Barns. Uh-huh. So yes. An incident at Stone Barns, um, which something that was difficult to comprehend uh-huh. t- turned into something, the Black Farmer Fund. And I say that because, you know, um, we had a group of, we commandeered their library and just sat there with black folks and people of color just to talk about what is the urgency that we need. Mm-hmm. And it all came down to capital. Yeah. Capital is, you know, farm, you need to start any business, you need money, 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 money. And for so long, we have always had our hands out. Yeah. Always our hands out. And so we started to talk about what would it look like to have an economy that has our money, our voices, our control. And so we started to come together to talk about what would a Black Farmer Fund look like? What would it entail? What would would be its mission, its value? And so we put our story out there to the universe. This is a fund that wants to help Black farmers in New York State because we didn't want to be broad-based okay. in New York State to help a farming economy that, again, 57,000 farmers in New uh-huh. York State, only 139 are Black. Uh-huh. So what does that mean in terms of the economy of Black farmers and Black businesses that getting, not getting any sort of money and what does it mean to the economy when people are talking about diversity and inclusion and food justice and food sovereignty when you have a race of people that are not even being included? Yeah. When it comes to land use, when it comes to wealth use, they're not even there. And so putting that out into the universe 
and asking for people to, to support that work, the work that we want to help black farmers and black businesses with startup capital so that they yeah. can be self-sufficient and self-reliant. Who wouldn't want to put money to help that? Get yeah. people out of poverty, get them off those lines, getting farmers so that they can come into communities of color and people can see people that look like them, farmers that look like them, but not only to support black businesses and black startups, but let's support ways whereby we can have that educational component. We could talk about what does social capital communal wealth look like? What does it look like to have um, to get people out of debt? What does it look like to be able to have people invest in the community? What does it look like for people to, to talk about um, in, investing in food systems that produces um, um, ownership of businesses? Having that conversation and yet sitting down and having the decision on where that money is going and then who should get that money in the hands of, of the community the community that they work in, that they live in, that they are the ones that are making that decision-making, um, that decision-making power. And so um, we're going into our third year. We started the pilot program last year. We gave out the money. Um, and so we are on track. We, as a matter of fact, just got off the phone because we'll have a a meeting, like a check-in meeting in March, just to see how okay. those eight farm businesses and farms are doing um, and start really having those hard conversations around building wealth within the Black community, which for so long has not even happened. You know, mm -hmm. in my community is always, we're going to sign you up. You know, here's the nearest food pantry, soup kitchen. Let's just sign you up for SNAP. And it's like, you know, where, where, where is the urgency to start thinking about building social capital and communal wealth within those communities, especially those marginalized communities who have been on the outside, you know, uh -huh. looking in and trying to have access to land and trying to have access to capital and trying to just have that opportunity, you know, yeah. that opportunity to do what they want to do. Yeah. Now you guys do a mix of grants and loans, correct? Yes. Okay. which is really, really important because again, how do you navigate a loan so that, because for so long, it's been so hard to, um, for, the, for the black community, black farmers and businesses to get loans with such high interest. You know, mm -hmm. the first thing, you know, you walk into a bank, you walk into any lending institution, what's the first thing they want to see? Before you can even talk, they don't want to hear your story. What's your credit? Yes. You know what I'm saying? Show, what's your business plan? Show us your business plan, your credit. Not that you know you're trying to grow food, help grow food. We want to see your business plan and your credit. Uh -huh. And if your credit is bad, we can help you. However, we want your firstborn, maybe your secondborn, and then we're going to add on 20% interest. And then we want your, th your arm too, your right, right. left arm. And so, and so the system is there for you to fail, for you yeah. to default. And so trying to, again, um, provide grants, but also provide loans and walk people through that process of a business taking on loans, looking at their infrastructure, how are they balancing their books, 
Where is that back office that they need to make sure that they're making payments on time, what they, uh -huh. you know, that they're not defaulting? Where is it along the loan that there might be difficulty in? Because as a farm, you know this. So at farm, there's highs and lows. There are ways yeah. during the farm season where production is great and you're making that money, you're making those bill payments. And then there's that low where mm -hmm. you're not doing anything. You know, it's the end of the season. You're not doing anything. So then how do you build a structure within that loan that takes in, that into consideration? Because a bank, they don't care. You got to make those monthly payments. They're not going to say, well, you know, hey, so it's now November. You're not working. So, you know, yeah. you can miss a payment. No, you can't. We want that payment. They don't yeah. want to hear the story. And so, again, putting more a human aspect to the fund is 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 great you know is is great holding hands along that process to make sure that when there's bumps along the way that there are people there to, to, to that can help you get through those hard times and mm -hmm. listen and be there and be supportive so what kind of um what kind of things do you look for like when you're figuring out who to fund for this well you know they have to meet certain criteria, you know, again, looking at some of the ways that, you know, we want to make sure that, that they keep the interests of the community at heart, Okay. You know, yeah. that, that they're going to give back to the community, that they take pride in the environment and how they grow stuff, you know, how they grow and how, how mm -hmm. intentional they are um, when it comes to in, in environment. Um, what are their ways of, of thinking about, once they're on their feet, giving back into the community is really, really important. How do they look in terms of expanding? If they're going to expand, are they going to reach out to people in the community to, to help with that expansion? Um, where does the money go to, you know, at the end, where's the money being um, invested? Is it uh -huh. being invested back into the business and back into the community? So there's certain criteria that we're, we're looking at. And then we want to hear people's stories. You know, we want to hear people's stories like, okay, what is it? What is it you want to do differently? What is it that we're missing? What is it that we can help you to so that your build so that your business can be sustainable, which is really, really important. What are, what are, what are we missing? What have you seen in the past that mm -hmm. has make, made it difficult for you to get a loan or to, um, to 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 run a business also we definitely encourage mentors mentorship you know mm -hmm. really finding especially those those startups that are really new or that need help so providing them with a mentor that help them with management you know a lot of us know how to grow food but we don't know how to manage our finances mm -hmm. so looking at um ways that uh we can sort of bring in a mentor to help them but then, you know, trying to find ways that they um, can be successful is really, really important and giving them those tools. Yeah. And I'm actually here on that site and uh, you have the eight recipients, the, the pilot cohort, which is cool to look at the stories of what, the, of what all those farms are doing. Everything from CB, is it CBD even? CBD. Yeah. Yes. Man. Um, so yeah, quite the diversity here. Um, I think at Orchard, small orchard right there. Mm -hmm. um, David. Yeah, very cool. Very cool to see all that. 
Um, what would you say to someone who's just getting into farming? What kind of what kind of message would you give them? Follow, you know what? I always tell people, you have a dream, put it out to the universe. Mm-hmm. Put it out to the universe because the only reason why we have the land that we have is that I happen to be sitting on a on a on a tour bus. Okay. I had a conversation with someone said, you know, asked me what I did. And I told them, you know, me and my friends were looking for land, gave me a phone number, took that phone number and called. So your hopes and dreams, put it out so that people can hear it. And you might find someone that says, wait a second, I know this person, I can help you. But if you keep your hopes and dreams inside, mm-hmm. then never, it's never going to happen. So that's my advice, especially to young people. Yeah. Yeah. What question do you wish I asked that I didn't? What am I besides a farmer? Yeah, tell us. <laughs> so, yes. So I happen to be a mother of two incredible children. So my, okay. my daughter is Dr. Kendra Washington Bass, who is an educator. Um, it works here at Gwinnett County School System, teaching assistant principals to become principal. So I'm proud of her. She oh, went to Notre cool. Dame. And mm-hmm. so she's doing a lot of recruitment for students that want to go to Notre Dame. My son works for the health department. He's, he is the director of food safety. Oh, so I'm proud of him. Um, and my two grandchildren, my son, my grandson, Julian, um, does a lot of work around um, graphics. So he has this sort mm-hmm. of TikTok thing. He has a project. He works with Disney and Paramount. He's out there doing really, really well um, in in the business. Um, and then my other son, grandson is uh, attending Mercer College in engineering. So yeah, so I'm a, Very I'm cool. a mother and a grandmother and I'm proud to of all my children so yeah that disney gig sounds pretty cool yeah it is cool yeah i've 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 respected that company as very creative the the amount of creativity there is just very interesting to see what they come up with so what does the future look like for you well um like i said i've made the transition so i i live in in georgia Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to take care of myself in terms of uh, self-care, even though I'll still be farming mm-hmm. up in Chester, New York. I just bought a tiny house. So I'll be up there at Chester, New York for the next three years. But I've been asked to write a book. And so I'm trying to trying to find some times to do that. I'm going to do a project with my daughter, a podcast um, in the future with my daughter. She's coming out with her book and leadership. That should be oh, very out cool. sometime this, this year. But I want to travel. I want to travel. I want to meet people. I want to enjoy life. Um, there's so much things that you want to do. I never want to say woulda, coulda, shoulda. But mm-hmm. um, I'm having the time of my life here, being in, in Georgia and um, just resting and being able to to set a time where I can, you know, be with family and friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what COVID has has really taught me and so many other people, how important family is, family and friends. And Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, this, this virus took a a lot of, took that away from, away from a lot of people. And so I want to cherish my family. I want to cherish my friends. I want to cherish my health. Mm 
Mm -hmm. uh, all those things that the healthcare professional, I, I can see it can be going in the instant. So that's my future. And my future is to continue to knock down doors and knock down barriers mm -hmm. um, and be there as a mentor for the next generation of people that are coming up, be there for them to give them advice and support. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, that is a wonderful vision. And if you ever do come to Ohio, feel free to look us up. Make sure you do look us up. We'd love to have you visit. So yeah, thank you so much. I've been there one time when uh, the Women, Food, and Agriculture Network had their conference at one time in Ohio, and I saw rows and rows of corn. <laughs> There's a lot of corn. Yes, yes, yes. We actually have an urban farm, so we're within the city limits. Okay, um, that's good. So yes. maybe I'll come back and see that instead of Rose, corn. Rose, corn. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Well, I appreciate your time, Karen. Very uh, privileged to have you on the podcast and share your wisdom and uh, your vision. It's again, incredible what you've done and um, just the vision and the leadership you've shown over the last decades to move the movement forward. Thank you so much for having me and uh, peace be with you. Thank you. Bye now. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.